Now, welcome back, our youth missions team. Welcome back from your trip. Uh, Kevin, I spot you. I don't spot John. Where's John? I was talking to him earlier. Kevin, come on up here, everybody. I know. Speaking of panic, you were in Sunday school, right? You, you did. Yeah, you knew about panic. All right. Well, we don't have much time. But um, can you give us a quick recap on what uh, your mission team did this past week? I can. Yes. I saw pictures. It was impressive. It was. It was. It was uh, quite an experience. We were in the Bahamas, right? Just calm, easy, living a good life. Uh, it was certainly not that. We were on the east end of the Bahamas, um, and it was a Bahamian island where there aren't too many people to begin with. Uh, we ministered and built a house on a crooked foundation. Um, we had Bob Gerhardt here a few weeks ago talking about foundations and how important they are. They're very important. Uh, we started on a concrete pad that was not level, that was not square, but we had to try to build a house on top of this thing. And uh, that was quite a challenge. Um, but our work consisted of framing up walls and building trusses by hand. Uh, we got all of the walls up and all of the trusses on the building in three and a half days. Um, the team of people that we worked with, um, both from Experience Mission, Justin Hollinger kind of led us. That was a God thing, having him along, because without his expertise, we would have been lost. Um, but it was a great experience. Um, there are stand-up, if you were on the trip, just so you guys know who to talk to real quick. There's a handful of you here. Talk to these folks. Um, it's pretty cool what God has done in that area and what he's going to do. We were the first group back uh, after COVID, and the community has about 30 houses that need to be rebuilt. The storm surge in the area where we were was about eight foot, and this happened about two years ago. There were storm surges down the island a little bit farther that were as high as 30 foot. The ceiling is, what, 15, 20 foot? Can you imagine a 30-foot storm surge? Even an 8-foot storm surge over pretty much the entire island. No part of the island had less than about 4 or 5 feet from what we were told. How did your power tools work? Power tools? What are they? Uh, we, uh, we framed all of our walls, built our trusses by hand with a circular saw, hammer, and nails. Um, so we got to learn how to... to to work without the uh, everyday occurrences and tools that we are typically used to. Um, That's here. what I heard. So, um, <laughs> the pastor we were working with, I'll share his story real quick, or what he told us when we left. Uh, his, his speech of gratefulness included that um, this hurricane happened almost two years ago in September, and he said that we were the first group to come in and to start rebuild because of COVID. Yeah, everything just got pushed back, and so many people are still displaced from their homes. And he said, it was just nice to see the people that are left in the community to have a little bit of hope again, to see the structure. There's one road that runs down the island, and you can see the ocean almost on both sides. It's, it's pretty much that skinny. Um, but as you go down the main road, you can see this framed house starting to go up, you know, that we got the kind of have the first part of that, and groups are coming in this week to, to continue that project. And he said it's just bringing hope to a lot of despair. Um, many stories of people that had to crawl into their attic to avoid the water, and some of them didn't survive because of the storm flood and washed the house off the foundation, off to sea, them along with their houses, never to be seen again. Uh, that's the type of situation that they're going through. Many of the people are still displaced, still don't have a home. Nobody has insurance. It's going to be a long road to recovery. So for those of us that went there, I think the Bahamas are going to be on our hearts for a while. 
Mm-hmm. I would encourage you to pray along with us for them as they recover. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, we will definitely set up a time to hear from the team and also to see some pictures. The, the picture that I saw this morning is like, whoa, you guys did all of that without any power tools. That was quite impressive. So our speaker this morning is actually no stranger because he taught Sunday school here for three months. So we're excited to have Tucker Zimmerman back with us. Tucker is with Young Life in Southern Chester County, and they work on spreading the gospel to teenagers and discipling teenagers. And so, Tucker, come and share with us from the Word of God, and let's pray first, okay? Father, thank you for this opportunity to have Tucker Zimmerman with us. And Lord, we ask that he would be your mouthpiece today. Lord, use him to speak to our hearts. Lord, use him in such a way so that our faith would increase and that, Father, we would become more like Jesus as that's the mission of this church. So, God, bless this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Tucker. Well, good morning. Make sure I have them turned on. I think so. Um, yeah, I am. There we go. So, uh, yeah, as he said, as Steve said, it was fun to be with you guys uh, doing Sunday school. With, I got to know a lot of you that way this spring. Um, and, and as he said, also, I work with Young Life, and so our, our goal is to share the gospel with high school kids in the area. Um, and so I spent a lot of my time in the Octorera school district, and also now in the last year or two, trying to develop ministries in the other local surrounding high schools, um, Oxford, Avongrove, Kennett, Unionville being kind of on the, on the horizon as to where we want to see um, more and more kids reach with the gospel. So that's, that's the hope. Um, and so as I got to know you guys over the spring, I don't know if I mentioned, I don't think I mentioned, um, but my wife and I are actually expecting our first in September and so nine months seems like an eternity, but we lost seven of them. I don't know where they went. And so now we're two months out. And it's like, this is right on the door. And so um, as I don't know if you can relate this, this week as I was, I was waiting in line. I don't even remember where I was, but I was bored and I pulled out my phone. Now, I don't know if, that, if you resonate with that at all. And that's a different maybe sermon on maybe we shouldn't. But I pull out my phone and um, Apple News has its way with this new update of getting into our into our home screen. Now they like put their little headlines in the middle of like text, headline about something crazy happening, and then phone call. Like, you know what I'm talking about? The the new update, it makes the clickbait even harder. And so me, as this new parent-to-be, this clickbait says, the three things all parents of successful kids do. I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, click. And so I started scrolling through, and one one of the three things that was pretty interesting as I thought about what we were going to share this morning one of the three things was they praise the process instead of the outcome. And of course, I'm like, okay, this is, you know, keep reading. And then you end up in this wormhole of random things. But I start reading it. And the, the concept that they were trying to promote in this was a bunch of people with doctorates and fancy degrees and all this saying that what we should do is when our kid and maybe, I don't know, according to these guys, so I'm not condemning anyone. I'm not even a parent. But um, they bring home this, they bring home a painting or a picture or something and say, hey, isn't this amazing? And according to this article, we shouldn't tell them it's amazing if it's not. But instead, oh, I love how you 
the colors you use or, or something in there that's actually factual and true um, instead of praising the, the drawing, saying, that's beautiful, because we all know sometimes they are just have great colors, you know, and we'll say it that way. And so as I'm thinking about this and, and I read through the, the end of the article, the, what they were trying to communicate was that kids can grow up believing they're great artists only to find out that they're not. <laughs> kids can believe that they're great, maybe baseball player in my context, uh, and find out that they're not. When I grew up, I played Little League um, in Octorera League, and, and uh, I was a catcher. And so for those of you who know a little bit about baseball um, and you watch maybe major leagues, base, catcher is the position that has the lowest threshold for competency at hitting. You can be a very bad hitter and still play a lot if you're a catcher because no one else is dumb enough to do it. Evidenced by I'm limping my way up here today because this week I put my, my feet up on my desk in my office and I popped something in my knee and I'm limping from years of catching. So no one wants to do it. And so as a kid, I'm a catcher and most, I guess a lot of parents are like, no, you're not doing that because it hurts your knees. And so there's not a lot of catchers to choose from. And so me, this very bad, bad, very bad hitter, I ended up playing up. I was eight years old and I got to play in the 9-10 league. So I'm like, oh man, this is, I can't even remember what it's called, minors maybe. But anyway, I got to play up and I'm like, I am a really good player. I made the all-star team and played every inning four years in a row. Didn't really catch on as they're saying, all-star. I'm like, major league, all-star. You know, like me, all-star, all-star. I'm going to be one of them someday. That's kind of what I equated it to. We had two teams, so they made an all-star team of the best of both teams. So that means I beat out one other catcher. So in, the, in my world, I was like, I'm going to be an all-star, right? I thought I was so good. I didn't really catch on. If you know enough about baseball, I was dh for the entire time, which means they had someone else hitting for me. That's not important because I was told you're an all-star, you know? And so I believed this about myself. And then when I ended up getting into, I went, West, went to West Valleyfield, some of you were there uh, have, and know that place well. And they didn't have a baseball team. We had a softball team where if you owned your own glove and didn't have to borrow one from the gym class storage room, you didn't get cut. That's basically how it went. And I made the team and I started on that team and I was a good player. And then I hit high school and Octorera, mind you, is the smallest school, the punching bag of all sports in Chester County. And they, I made that team. And I started in ninth grade, and you know what? I was a good player. And turns out um, that was the pinnacle of my career. Uh, I went downhill to the point that junior year, the varsity coach says, you're going to play JV this year for more development. I'm like, got it, you know, because I'm still going to be the best next year. And it just went downhill. Then I went to the where, underhand now. I'm playing against some of you in modified where we throw it hard, but, but underhand to try to, like, decrease the level of competition so I can increase my self-worth. And then that one didn't go so well, so now I went to the high arc slow pitch softball because when I play against Matt Hershey and he pitches, I can't hit. And so anyway, it comes down. Now I have to get the really like, hey, let's just float it in there. That's the league I play in mostly now because, again, I'm still a great player. And sometimes I think we, get our, we can build our self-worth and our self-confidence on these things that I'm not challenging your parenting at all. Clearly, I have no place to stand on. I am in the negative two months of parenting um, experience. But I would say that sometimes we, get, we build our self-worth on things that maybe aren't actually helpful, or in my case, aren't true. I batted a, a whopping 091 in high school, um, which if you're aware, that means I got, out one, I got out 10 of 11 times at bat. And I should also say um, the only hits I had in high school on varsity were bunt, bunt singles. 
I did get fast and good at bunting, but that was because I couldn't hit and I had a lot of practice because the coach would say, can you just bunt? So I got good at it, you know, and one of those times out of 11 when I wasn't DH where I got a hit. So I had this, this idea that I was a good baseball player and, and it crumbled out from under me. And I think that's a silly example, but there are a lot of things that we have that we identify with that we believe are who we are. And, and those things begin to define us. Growing up, I was a baseball player. Growing up, we, and as we begin and we go through life, we have these things, these identifying factors. And I want you to think about, this is maybe a little bit different than a typical sermon, but I want you to take out a piece of paper or a phone or something, and those of you sitting here thinking, I'll just remember it, not okay. Find something, pen, paper, phone, you can text your spouse the list, whatever it is, but I want you to make a list, three to five bullet point characteristics, identifying factors, Okay. So you can, whatever they are, maybe they're characteristics or character traits, maybe you're very patient, or maybe you're a very good baseball player, or maybe you're an artist, right? I don't, I don't know what it is, maybe it's job, name, etc. Come up with five, three to five things, no more, bullet points. And I'm going to set some stuff up here so you actually have time where I'm going to stop talking. It's going to get really quiet, so you might as well do it. Okay. Do we have some written down? This would be a good thing to um, just think about and maybe keep somewhere. Um, but anyway, so as we think about, this is as embarrassing or maybe, I don't know, this is just true, okay? So good or bad, this is my list. And I want you to rank that list that you had. And so I ranked them on what I call, some of you can't see the back, but we'll see if we can very gently move this. Pressure is on. Do not drop. Okay, there we go. So, my list that I put, I think if you can't quite see them in the back, it's a general list. But the point is, I rank them on what I would call an identity ladder. And so my identity, and I think this is how a lot of us work, our identity gets, can be formed over time by the characteristics or traits that we believe about ourselves, that someone has told us, true or otherwise, but we believe them, Right? And so I put husband, successful in ministry, again, arrogant or accurate, we'll let you decide, creative, um, again, part of a, of a great family, and then I, my ladder wasn't tall enough. So um, have a nice house. I just got done renovating a house, and I'm very proud of that, probably too proud, but I am, just enjoy it, and that's something that's part of who I am. And then also in good shape physically, which, as I just said, I'm limping up here. That one is a little bit old, but... Um, I, I just the other day decided, you know what, maybe I'm on the keto diet. And that's just something that I like. I'm always thinking about how to try to be healthy, and yet I can't walk. And so that's a different thing for another day. 
Um, but so this is, we identify ourselves by these things. And maybe you have different things on this list. I would hope that they're not exactly the same or else I would wonder if you've been across the street with a camera or like stalking me or something. But we have these different lists. Every little piece is going to be a little bit different. But that's, that defines who we are a lot of times. And so for the last couple months, we'll, we'll kind of come back to this. The last couple months, the Lord has been showing me and teaching me a lot about maybe the places that I've put my confidence or put my worth in that weren't helpful, weren't accurate, or also weren't the way he meant for me to have my confidence and self-worth in. And so if you guys, I know some of you, the Davises and Cunninghams were at baccalaureate um, and when I spoke just not too long ago for Octorera. And uh, he was still teaching me it then. And so we're in the same passage. He's been, I feel like the Lord has maybe been lovingly beating me over the head with this um, since prior to a baccalaureate service. So that means it's been a long, painful beating. Um, also loving. But I think it's something that the Lord's been showing me. And we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 43. And so you can turn there um, in your Bibles. That would be great. And we're going to look at a few um, kind of selected verses throughout Isaiah 43 in the beginning of 44. And I want us to think about an identity ladder. What is yours? How should it look? Um, and how does that shape us? So as we get some context for the book of Isaiah, um, the first 40 chapters, which is a, it's a lot, first 40, 40, 40 chapters of Isaiah is Isaiah, God talking through his prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel. And, and what he's telling them is, I'm your God, I've brought you to this land, I've given you a covenant, and you're not obeying that covenant. This is a general summary of 40 chapters. And if you don't turn around, if you don't repent, if you don't begin to follow this covenant, you will end up in captivity. You will end up taken out of your land. Something that I would imagine, an Israelite identity ladder, although I don't know what ladders look like in the, in the Middle East in that time, but probably not Werner, um, Shout out. But if their latter probably included something about living in the promised land and their heritage and their family being of the clan of Benjamin or, or um, it probably had to do with their obedience or their adherence to the Mosaic law or, or something like that, right? You can imagine what their, their latter might look like. And so 40 years or 40 chapters of Isaiah warning the people, repent and obey or else you end up in captivity. Then we have a, a, an event in history where they end up in captivity. And then we pick up the verse, chap, verse, sorry, chapter 43 in that next section is Isaiah talking to them while in captivity. While I would imagine, now they, some of them had their families, some of their family was still there, but everything else that you would really put on a ladder, that you would say, this is who I am, was stripped away from them. Their homeland what seemed like any hope of future for them as a nation. Family, some of them were in captivity with them, probably. The other ones were killed. Other ones estranged and left and hid and wouldn't see again. Not in a world of Facebook where you can find people who are gone, right? And so everything was shaken for them. And we pick it up in Isaiah 43, um, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord... He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I'm going to read that, just that verse 1 again. And we'll get some selected passages, but I would recommend that you read this entire 
um, passage, the full piece that we're not going to get to. Read this uh, at some point this week. But here's verse 1 again. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. This is very important. If one of these things or any of these things were to be gone, like they were in the case of the Israelite people, if they end up like maybe the bottom one, my, my physical health, okay, as if I, like standing up here on my knee, I'm like, what is going on, right? So if I say I'm completely unable to walk and my physical health is completely stripped away, a chunk of you disappears. It becomes, you leave, there's a vacancy, like, wait, who am I? If this is me and now this is gone, then who am I? Who's left? What's left of me? And I think that's where the Israelite people find themselves and they're saying, what is going on? Who am I? I'm in prison. I mean, think about this. I, I, I was listening to, um, it was on 4th of July and in that kind of weekend, the song, the, the radio kind of very themed, very patriotic songs. And the song, I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. Okay? Think about that song. And, and now, now picture yourself singing that song, having a 4th of July celebration in prison in Siberia. Okay, that, right? That's the closest thing I can come up with to a modern-day example of what captivity would look like when the nation of Israel was taken into captivity. You just don't want to sing it. Like, it just feels weird. And it also feels hard. And all of their heritage was based on I've called you out of Egypt. I've brought you to the land that which I've promised you. This is your land. You are my people. You are chosen. Out of you will all the nations of the world be blessed. By the way, you're all in prison. Not to mention just in prison, but there are people, and this is something that we probably don't understand or can't actually fathom, I would imagine. There were people born and dying all in the span of their imprisonment. There was not a single person who went in who came out alive, at least not that we know of, and I would doubt it based on life expectancy. It lasted 70 years. I don't think a single person remembers freedom, remembers captivity, and remembered going back. That's something that American, like, it's all about me, live my life kind of deal that I just, I can't process, and I would imagine that's something that we, what would it look like what, he's calling, what God's calling them to is to remember not that you're in a land or that you have prosperity, but that you were created by God, you were formed, you were redeemed, and you were called by name. And as a result, you are his. That's what he's telling these people. Even though nothing around feels like that's true. Nothing around them felt like that could possibly be true. But he reminds them, I created you, I formed you, I redeemed you, I called you by name, because of this, you're mine. That's all that matters. That's what he wants to remind them of. And you go through the rest of the passage, and we're not going to read through all of it, but essentially he says, these are the things that I will do for you, even though you don't deserve them. Okay, that's a summary. Read it all for yourself. But going down to verse 22, I want to read this, um, the rest of this section starting in verse 22, because what we see is their response. It's not what should have been their response, but it is their response. 
Basically, thus says the Lord, I've done all these things, I've cared for you, blah, blah, blah. 22. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities. That is the current rap sheet of the nation of Israel. He's saying, you're mine, I've called you, I've formed you, I've redeemed you, and this is, this is what you show me for it? And then in verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance, let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your, fa- your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. This is where the, what they were experiencing. And now the verse, first five verses of chapter 44 gives us a picture of God responding in a way that we would, should not expect based on the Israel's behavior and Israel's response to the covenant. But now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. They shall spring up, they shall spring up among the grass like willows from flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. What is the response? God says, I've chosen you, I will care for you. And the last verse, you see a couple different ways in verse 5, a couple different ways in which you will see what people understanding that they are his. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of, the, the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand. I mean, this is just kind of cool. Like, the Lord's, tag, branding. I'm the Lord's. And another one will name himself by the name of Israel. We are called, in the same way as the nation of Israel was called, in the same way that when the nation of Israel ended up in this situation that seemed like nothing was going the way they had planned, it seemed like all the things that they used to hold stock in were gone, were torn away, were ripped apart. Chunks of their flesh, of their body were ripped apart in a sense. Who am I? A lot of them were even, interestingly enough, like the thing that's very sacred to us, our name. Just, I'm, my name is Tucker. And that, I plan on that being my name until I die. These some people, some people in captivity, they actually were renamed. Like they didn't even get to keep that part of themselves. It's like, who am I? And I think the question for us is we have to ask, who are you? Or who am I? Who am I really? Am I Tucker who is a husband and has a ministry job and blah, blah, blah? Or am I the Lord's? And I, and I want to give us this picture. 
It's not that we're just supposed to turn one of these and make sure, wait a second, I should define myself. One of these things that defines me is that I'm a Christian, or one of these things should say, I'm the Lord's. Because that doesn't even get the full picture of what's going on. He says, in these five, this first section of chapter 44, you see, he says, I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. It's this idea that God will care for, and as a result of God caring for and protecting us and providing for us, his redeemed, his chosen people, because of that, the rest doesn't matter. And so it's not that we get to rank these things or we should rank these things in a different order or that we should have different things on the ladder, but it's that the entire ladder itself, instead of Werner, it's the Lord's, okay? I don't know if that... We, the entire ladder has to be that we are the Lord's. And that that informs, and that is the shelf that everything else can sit on. Without the ladder, I have a pile of scrap wood sitting on a pile on the floor. Each piece of who I am is informed by being the Lord's. But more importantly than that, none of them can rest, none of them can stand, none of them are of any value apart from me being the Lord's. Because in the same way that God called the nation of Israel, he calls his people. The call is there. He died on the cross for each of us. And then when we see that opportunity, that even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of the nation of Israel, as they responded to the covenant poorly, they ignored the covenant. They didn't do what they were supposed to. As we ignored the covenant, our first father, Adam, sinned, and since then the mediators have transgressed him. As we have fallen. We are utterly fallen. And the call is, because Jesus Christ died on the cross, he offers life. And when we respond to that call, we get to become a child of his. As John 1 talks about, we get to be adopted into his family as children. To those who believe on the name of Jesus Christ, we, can, we have the right to be called the children of God. And as we become children of God, as we become and recognize that that's who we are, I get to, as a redeemed child of God, be a husband. If, this is not the prayer, but if it would happen that for some reason I was no longer a husband, if Shira met an untimely death on the way home, that's not the plan. But if that would happen, I am still a redeemed child of God who no longer has that one responsibility. It doesn't shatter who I am. The latter remains, even though one of the things in my life doesn't happen. If all of a sudden I'm no longer what I think of as a great baseball player, I am the Lord's. I'm a redeemed child of God. And the things that are a part of me, the things I participate in, the responsibilities that have been given to me, the characteristics that I pursue and achieve and try to be like Christ in, maybe I try to be patient. I want patient to be on here. It's not. I didn't write it. That's not honest. But I would love for patient to be on here. But as a redeemed child of God, I live my life with patience. If I, but the point is that I am a redeemed child of God, and that is the entire ladder, not a shelf on it. There is nothing in our life that should be able to or really can stand. Because at the end of this life here on earth, and what's hard for us as, as a Western culture to imagine is, is that, I mean, as I talked about, the nation of Israel realized that their identity was maybe beyond their own lifetime. For us, it's like, when I'm done, maybe my kids, but that's it. 
So to recognize that when I die, none of these things will be relevant. I mean, you see this interesting passage with Jesus talking um, in the Gospels where it's like, which one will they be married to? The one um, woman ended up marrying seven times. Which one will be married to? And Jesus doesn't answer the question. He's like, it's not important. A redeemed child of God. Now, I don't know the answer, and Jesus doesn't actually answer it. But he does pretty clearly indicate that it's not important. Because we're a redeemed child of God first. If my successfulness or my ministry disappears for whatever reason, I am no longer have the opportunity to work in young life, or I'm working in young life poorly. Either one of those things happens, I'm a redeemed child of God nonetheless. And so that's my challenge for you, is to think about what defines who you are. And if there's something on your list that you wrote down, that if it were taken away, you would be ruined. And I don't mean sad. I'm not saying if this unfortunate situation where Shira meets an untimely death on the way home, if that were to happen, that that would not make me sad. But would it ruin us? And I think if any one of these things becomes so key that it becomes the ladder itself and you pull the ladder away, if husband is the ladder and it gets pulled away, I'd be ruined. If any one of those things is the ladder and it gets kicked over, I'd be ruined. But the point of what we're trying to talk about today, the identity ladder and what what Isaiah is telling the nation of Israel is nothing in your life. They had an empty ladder. They had nothing on the rungs. They're just in prison for their entire lives and probably their kids' lives as well. There's nothing on their ladder to point to. And he says, but you are his. You are redeemed. You are his chosen people. And so I want you to think about that list and think about if there's something on there that you can't imagine, you can't even imagine living life without, it would ruin you. I want you to take that to the Lord this week. When you wake up tomorrow, whatever your quiet time maybe process looks like, maybe you don't. Maybe you just find some space while you're driving and say, Lord, I think that might have too much of a hold on me. And I know for me over the last two, three months, there's just been some interesting things as I think about being a father and what does that look like and and just a lot of things going on in my head is I have been holding some of my value and my self-worth and my confidence and my identity in things that are not being redeemed. They're not something that, they are something that can be shaken. It's not something that is firm. The only firm thing we have to hold on to is that we are, we have the opportunity to be the redeemed. And I want to say, as we, as we kind of wrap up, the call is there for everybody. Jesus' death on the cross, it's an interesting dynamic on how the nation of Israel worked in relationship to the other nations? And that's a Jesse question or a Steve question and how that works. But the call in the new covenant is that is for all to respond to the gospel. The call is there. That we have, for all those, John chapter 1, for all those who call on the name of the Lord, we have been given the right or the opportunity to be called the children of God. And I don't know what builds your ladder, what your frame is based on. But I know for me, at times, I find it to be 
the things that I've achieved, what I accomplish, and not the fact that the Lord has redeemed me. I at times find it in even failure. I identify myself in failure. I have failed and I am a failure. That's how I feel, like Tucker the failure. I at times feel that way and that's not, that's not fair to God's chosen child, God's redeemed child, me. Sometimes I, I think this kind of, I work in um, a high school context for the most part and so typically we're talking about this sort of stuff there's so many things that we can hold on to, whether it's athletic achievement or, or body image or money and stuff. Or maybe it's that I'm good, a good person, generally good. I'm nice, kind, good neighbor, etc. Or maybe it's that I'm really involved at Waterway. I lead Waterway 2-5, or I guess those people aren't here, but I lead and I do things and I, and I serve in church and, and, and I'm involved and that's who I am. Maybe it's missions. Maybe you're on that trip. It's like, I, I did good. I am good because I did good. <laughs> that kind of, what is it that holds you up? What is it that gives you confidence? What is it that allows us to move day to day, that allows us to get up, allows us to have confidence, allows us to live? Is it anything other than being a redeemed child of God? And if so, I challenge you to take that to the Lord. And it it's, can be hard. I know for me, and this is, this, let's wrap up with this story. I grew up at, um, at Peckway Baptist Church, and I was my grandfather was the pastor, and my parents were on the board, and, and I grew up kind of with this idea that I would be a pastor at Peckway Baptist. That was just this idea that was in my head, and, and I, just, I remember um, when I was like six or seven years old, I had a little ladder, you know, apparently it's a ladder thing with me, I had a little ladder on the front porch and a Bible on it, and I was preaching to the front yard, and my parent, my mom came out and made fun of me, and I felt all sheepish in the whole thing, but the point was, I, like, at a young age, like, felt like I was going to be my grandpa. And then I went to Bible college to be a pastor. I mean, as it just would happen, there's some, some leadership transition. At the my time of my graduation, I apply for a job, and I become the youth pastor at Peckway Baptist. I'm like, Lord, the path is there. It's going. Like, I am following this path. And, and I lived in that. That was a piece of me. Like, it was like I replaced my kidney with, like, Peckway Baptist pastor or something. You know what I mean? Like a piece of me. And there came a time where Peckway Baptist offered me a job full-time and Young Life offered me a full-time job at the same time. And that was just a challenge. I wanted to just keep going on part-time. Like I was part-time at both, kind of live in both worlds, where I think the Lord was calling me, which would be Young Life, and where I, my piece of my heart was stuck at Peckway Baptist. And a great church. I love the people there. I love the mission of the church. They're doing great things. But I felt like the Lord was calling me to take a, a role with Young Life and to come and say, how do we make Young Life work in an area that's just been hard, that's been up and down for like as long as I can remember? And like, here go, take on the mess. And I felt like the Lord was really calling me to do it and say, this is hard. I mean, you guys have seen the ups and downs of Young Life in the Oxford area and in surrounding areas. And I felt like he was calling me to take on this, take on the mess and leave what I felt so comfortable in. 
And I remember I was sitting in a, in a church service at Peckway while I was still there, and, and, and I was just journaling, and I remember just writing down, I feel like I should. I feel like God wants me to do Young Life, and it's okay to leave. And it was this moment that the Lord finally gave me freedom where I, where it was like I no longer, I was able to remove it from a part of me, and I was still there. I was able to take this off and be like, oh, it didn't all fall over. It's not Jenga when you pull a block out. But I think for a lot of us, it is. It feels like Jenga. You pull this one thing out, all of a sudden, the whole thing crumbles. And what I want us to be is the people who trust the Lord and trust his call on our lives and trust that we are redeemed and that blocks can come and go and they're hard, but it doesn't topple. So again, it's something that goes into your, if there's something on there that you think you pull it out and the whole Jenga mess comes falling down and then I challenge you to take it to the Lord. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you that, we, that you have redeemed us. And I pray that we would find our security in that and that alone. Amen.